Well, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good. good? Uh, did you, so you had the question was, uh, what's your favorite restaurant? Anyone have like uh, one, one you want to share with everybody here? What? What did you say? Red Robin. Red Robin. Okay. What did you say? Manna. Manna. That's your favorite restaurant? Where's that? In the in the hospital. Wow, it's not where I thought I'd be going with this. But hey, if you want to go to the hospital for a good meal, there you go. Well, another question: Where where are my foodies at? Like who's like? Okay, we got to hold your hand up. I want to see it. Okay, there's a foodie. So if some of you don't even know what that is, the 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 foodie. Like, the, the biggest foodie I know is Chris over here, Borgelt. Uh, if you need a restra- restaurant recommendation or anything like that, he's the man to see if you need recipes. Uh, you might be a foodie if you have the Tasty app on your phone, or if you know the TV show uh, Drive-Ins, di- uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Uh, you might be a foodie if uh, you, you spend time thinking about what flavors would go together. Um, you're probably not a foodie if, if I asked you what your favorite restaurant is and you said uh, Red Robin or <laughs> Applebee's or Olive Garden. It doesn't mean you don't like food. <clears throat> it doesn't even mean it's not good food. Well, it might. But <clears throat> foodies are particular about uh, cultivating their 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 taste. Uh, I'm an aspiring foodie. Um, Last night, I asked the question to my family. I said, if you could be at any restaurant in the world right now, like if you could go to any restaurant, what would you say? And I'm asking you the question too, just as you think about that. If, If you could go to your favorite restaurant, what is it about that place? What is it about Maybe the food or, or the ambiance or the people you go with or um, any, any one of these things. When I asked my kids, you know, we, they, they grew up in Okinawa, Japan. And so everyone in our family mentioned a different Okinawan restaurant. Some mentioned uh, Japanese curry. Others said sushi. Uh, mine was also an Okinawan restaurant, but it's, it's in the category of dives, in fact, I lived right next to it for 10 years, but I didn't go for the first three or four years because I was afraid of the place. In fact, uh, in this a tropical setting with uh, everything's rusting out, it had a sign, but the sign was misspelled, and the sign said, the Quran restaurant. And I was like, what, what is that? I, I, I'm not going to a Muslim restaurant. It meant Korean restaurant, in case you're uh, not picking up what I'm putting down. Uh, but I, I was like, I don't know about this. And, and I'd, I'd walk by the windows, but you couldn't see in because they were literally caked in grease. Now, now I know that should be a sign of, of good things to come, but at the time I was like, I don't know that they're going to pass any health inspections or any of that. And, and so for years, I just ignored the restaurant next door. And every now and again, I'd go to my car in the parking lot, I'd, I'd get a whiff of it and I'd be like, well, that smells pretty good. But I wouldn't go until one day one of my friends said, hey, we went to that restaurant. It was amazing. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, there's two restaurants. You went to that one? Like, yeah, it was awesome. Well, tell me about it. He says, it's Korean barbecue. 
you grill it at your table. I'm like, okay. And so still a little bit leery, but it finally got some friends together and went. And inside, uh, once you get past the grease, there's four little tables. You sit down on tatami mats, and in the middle is a grill. And they bring out vegetables and pulgogi and uh, bibimbaps. If you you know Korean food, that's what they're just, it's all you can eat. And my world was changed in that moment. I, I had a whole new experience. And one of my favorite things to do was to introduce people to the restaurant. And so uh, if a guy wanted to meet me for lunch, I said, hey, let's go next door. Uh, let's plan it. We can't just go today. He's like, well, we'll just go. I'm like, no, no, you have to prepare yourself. <laughs> and so I said, we'll meet on Thursday. And so on Wednesday, I'm having a light dinner. Uh, on Thursday, I'm not eating breakfast. I'm, I'm walking the dog. I'm knocking out some push-ups, which I don't, I don't ever do. But uh, I'm drinking water. I'm trying to get prepared. I'm preparing myself, cultivating my hunger because I know it's about to be satisfied. And so I'd go there, and it would change their world, and, and I would enjoy it and, and all the stuff. And, but every now and again, I'd be in my office working, and, and a friend would text me or call me and say, hey, I'm free for lunch. you want to go next door? And I'd get sad. I'd get sad because I had just eaten a Little Juan's frozen burrito <laughs> and some chips, and I was full, but I was sad. Because you can't just do that. Like, like I would get full on, on Korean barbecue or that, but there's a difference in, in what you get full on because hunger and, and thirst are great motivators in our lives. And as we look at, as we're working our way, if you're new here, we're working, in case it didn't make sense, we're working our way through John's gospel, and we're on John chapter 7 today, but uh, once again, Jesus is going to connect our our physical with our spiritual, and he's going to say, I created you with uh, physical hunger, and I've created you with spiritual hunger, and if you understand what physical hunger can do for you, then you can begin to understand what spiritual hunger is meant to do for you. Hunger is a great motivator. Thirst is a great motivator. And it's actually a very good thing so so long as you have a a way to meet your thirst and meet your hunger with that which will satisfy. So personally, it motivates us, right? Like you're sitting at home watching TV and all of a sudden your body starts sending you signals, I'm hungry. And they don't go away. And so you, you, you eventually get up and go on a journey to the kitchen. If you go to the kitchen and there's nothing in there, you, you don't just tell your body, well, sorry. No, the body's like, no, I'm still hungry. And so you go on a journey to the grocery store or something like that. And it happens on a national scale as well. Have you ever heard of the, the Great hun- Hunger? 1845 to 1849. The people of Ireland know it as the Potato Famine. Uh, where the, the peasant population was wholly dependent on the potato. And when the potato blight came in, a million people died of starvation on that tiny island. A million more left their friends, left their family, left their life, and crossed over to Europe and crossed over the Atlantic because hunger and thirst are designed to move us. It, it happened in our own country, 1930s, in the Dust Bowl uh, they were known as the Okies because most of them came from Oklahoma as they, they traveled from Oklahoma to California because they, they heard that that was the land flowing with milk and honey because hunger and thirst will move us. And that's a good thing. But the problem is 
on this side of, of eternity, uh, that, that our hungers and our thirsts have been distorted uh, from the, our first parents, Adam and Eve. They, they hungered and thirst for that which they shouldn't have hungered and thirst for. And as they ate of the, the, gar- the tree in the garden, uh, everything changed. Our, our hunger got disordered. And we, we, we got swept away with chasing after things and, and trying to be satisfied in things that ultimately we were not designed to be satisfied in, but, but we, are, we are swimming, as it were, in a culture that hungers and fir- thirsts for things. And oftentimes we're not even aware of it. It, it goes beyond our thinking level, goes into our heart level. So, so last week, Matthew talked about uh, David Foster Wallace and his famous speech to Kenyon College And at the beginning of that speech, he gave a parable. He said, uh, there were two young fish swimming. And one day, an older fish came by and said, how's the water, boys? And he swims off. And the two fish swim for a little bit longer, and they they turn to each other, and one says to the other, what the heck is water? And and it's this idea of like, they they don't know what water is because they're surrounded by water, and they're just taken away by the currents. And we're all taken away by the currents of our culture's hunger and thirst. So, so one of the goals today that Jesus is going to uh, do for the people of Israel and for us is to wake us up to the water. That, that, that every week we swim in the water of, of, of ideas that, that promise to satisfy us, but that ultimately Jesus says won't. So let's just take 21st century suburban America, materialism. If you get enough stuff, salvation by enough stuff, then you'll be satisfied. Status. If you get high enough, then you'll be satisfied. If you go down the road far enough, then your hunger and thirst will be satisfied. And we're all pursuing those things just because that's where everyone else is going. And Jesus is going to come and say, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. So the question this morning is, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And if so, you're in a good place. If what's true of you physically is true of you spiritually, then you're in a good place, Jesus says, as long as your hunger and your thirst is for righteousness. And Jesus, this master teacher and communicator, uh, he he often teaches, um, often in John's gospel, not by lecturing, but by questions. Have you noticed that in the gospel? Even in in our chapter, there's 19 question marks that either Jesus is asking or, or they're asking about Jesus, about himself. There's these questions, and questions have a way of stopping and, and causing some self-reflection. And so he'll, he'll say, like last week, uh, are you guys going to go away too? And they have to stop and pause, and they say, well, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Uh, will you follow me? And he asks all these questions all the time to get, uh, get them and get us to stop and pause. And the very first words from Jesus in John's gospel, do, do you remember them? They're a question. And they're a question that I think shadow the whole gospel of John. In the beginning in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist is teaching. He sees Jesus and he points his disciples to Jesus. And two of them start to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and asks them a question. And the question is, what are you seeking? Actually, I like what the NIV, how the NIV translates it. What do you want? What do you want? Notice he doesn't say, what do you know? He doesn't even say, what do you believe? 
He says, what do you want? Because Jesus who created us knows that we aren't just thinking things. We aren't just brains on a stick. In fact, there are many things that we know to be true, but our hearts will lead us otherwise. So we'll eat things that we know we shouldn't eat. We won't exercise when we know we should. We won't, we won't spend our money the way we know we should. What we know is actually has very little to do with how we live. And so Jesus says, what do you want? What do you want? What, what do you hunger for? What do you thirst for? Jesus understands Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. See, our hunger and our thirst, Jesus is going to say, is meant to lead us to him. But you have to cultivate hunger and thirst. You, you know that, that hunger is, is a culturally uh, appropriated thing. It's, it's cultivated, right? So when I asked my family, what's the one restaurant you want to eat at? They all mentioned Asian food. They all mentioned sushi and curry and Korean, like, because that's what they cultivated their taste buds towards. And there is a way for you and I to cultivate our hunger and our thirst for Jesus. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And I'm just going to pray one more time as we go before this, because I don't want to take, ever take this lightly as God would address us in his word. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we, we have already confessed that our hungers and our thirsts have led us astray, but Lord, we want to hunger rightly. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir in us, stir in us those hunger pangs for you, for righteousness, for... Uh, for a real encounter with you. Not just that we would have knowledge, but that our hearts would be captured by you through your gospel. So be our teacher now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Jesus is coming to a people that are spiritually hungry and thirsty. And, and what we've argued and what Jesus has shown is that, that this whole book is ultimately about Jesus. And, and every law and every prophecy, every f- religious festival uh, is ultimately in some way, shape, or form meant to lead us to Jesus. And that's going to be true once again today. So Jesus, we'll, we'll, we'll work through this. I'm actually just going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning and most of our time at the end so don't worry, I won't hang out too long here. Uh, verse 1, after this, that's after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with the, with, with the loaves and the bread, and after most of the people left away, and all he's left with is the 12 disciples, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He, went, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So if if you, if you know John's gospel, we're about a third of the way into it, and already there is a massive plot led mostly by the religious leaders to murder Jesus. And we say that's, that's ridiculous, that's crazy, but, but in the end, we know that that is exactly what will happen. In fact, we know that's the very reason Jesus came, uh, but he's going to do it on his time and not theirs. And so he's now for six months hanging out in Galilee, backwoods Galilee. No one makes a name for themselves in Galilee, but Jesus is there. He says, uh, He would not go about Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. 
What in the world is the Feast of Booths? It was one of three pilgrimage feasts that the the people of God were called to go to Jerusalem three times a year. We're familiar with one of them, most likely, the Passover. That's the time when Jesus gets murdered. And we see the connection that, that the Passover was to remember that this time when God delivered his people out of slavery and then he sent a destroying angel and all that had, a, uh, had sacrificed the, an unblemished lamb and had put the blood of the lamb on their door, the destroying angel would pass over. And we know that Jesus is that Passover lamb, that the destroying angel passes over us because we're covered in his blood. But then there's another one called the Feast of Weeks, and this one now, the Feast of Booths. And actually, this one was the most popular of the three feasts. If you were just going to go to one, most people would go to this one, Josephus, the first century historian, tells us. They'd go to the Feast of Booths. What's the Feast of Booths? Well, they still observe it today in Israel. It's this time where it's basically a national camping week. And and, uh, what they did is they they were to remember the time that for 40 years in the desert, they wandered around in the desert, but they didn't wander aimlessly. That God provided for them when they were hungry. That God provided a a light for them at night and a a, a pillar by day, a cloud of, you know what I'm saying. Um, So God provided that also. And and then God also provided, when they were thirsty, water from a rock. And so this was an eight-day festival. It was a party, really. Um, But but you didn't just party. You had to take uh, branches and and leaves, and you had to make a a kind of tent. You couldn't sleep in your own house because it was a a very physical um, habit that they had worked into their calendar to remember God's love, faithfulness, and provision. And and they would uh, sacrifice uh, goat after goat and and bull after bull on the altar, and, and the blood would literally run off the altar and and cause a stream of blood down the side of the hill. And then they would have a barbecue and and they would make, it was like survivor. They would make their shelter out of leaves and branches. And the whole country did this. (coughs) And every day there was a procession uh, from the temple by the high priest, and he would lead a a crowd down to the pool of Siloam. That's where Jesus did that miracle that he got in trouble with. And the high priest would take a golden pitcher and he would dip it into the pool and fill up the pitcher. It was a symbol of God providing water for them when they were thirsty. And then they would work their way back up to the temple. And this whole time, there, there was a professional choir singing the Hallel. This is Psalms 113 to, to 118. And they would, uh, when they'd get to the end, they'd start over and they would sing this, these songs and the people would join in and, and, and the priest would get to the, the altar, the bloody altar, and he would give thanks to God And then he would pour out the water onto the altar and the the water and the blood would splash off the altar and they would thank God. And then they would eat and they would celebrate and they'd do it the next day and the next day and the next day. And Jesus eventually goes up there and he goes kind of incognito. He doesn't have his entourage. He certainly doesn't have a giant crowd anymore. But he starts to teach in the temple. And he's trying to provoke them to show them what this is all about. And so he says a few things that again, are offensive, but they're offensive in such a way to turn their affections towards him. Verse 19, he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. 
Now, this was offensive to the people that were in the middle of keeping the law, in the middle of observing a religious festival. And they're like, what are you talking about? No one keeps the law. And Jesus will teach them. He says, well, you haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. You might do some religious rituals, but you haven't kept the law. You have a need in your soul. And he'll go on. He'll say in verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Again, this is deeply offensive to the people who thought they knew God. I mean, this would be deeply offensive to almost anybody. I mean, you could tell your atheist neighbor tomorrow, hey, I'm sorry, you don't know God. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't know God. I don't believe in God, but I know God. You know, there's just this natural defensiveness that would rise up. But, but again, Jesus is trying to provoke something in them to, to, to maybe ask some questions. Do I know God? Do I keep the law? Well, this festival will go on. And then at the end of our chapter, that's where I want to kind of spend our time there. It says, on the last day of the feast. So this is the eighth day. It started on the Sabbath. It would end on a Sabbath. And, and John calls it the great day. On the last day of the feast, the great day, the, the priest would once again go down from the temple, once again dip the golden pitcher into the water, once again go up, and this time now the crowds have poured into Jerusalem, and everyone is singing. It's like a massive concert of Psalm 113 to 118, and they're singing it in unison. So no matter what street you go down, you can hear it. It is deafening if, if you can picture the scene. It's early September. I, I looked on Weather Channel and said, well, what would the temperature be? About 90 degrees in the desert, 90 degrees in the sun. Now it's about high noon. And there's this procession, and everyone's singing and shouting and and praising God and praising God, and and the procession goes back up, and the professional choir is in the temple. And and now it's not just the golden pitcher. There's another pitcher, another golden pitcher. This one's full of wine. See, the, the Feast of Booze was a time to look back at God's provision, but it was also a time to look forward. It was a time to uh, cultivate their hunger for that time when the prophets Ezekiel and Joel said God would pour out his spirit on his people. And it was a time to remind them to long for that day when, when God would do that. And so the, the priest would come and he would take the two pitchers and, and, and he would time it so that the very last verse of Psalm 18 would, would be on their lips, and they would repeat the last verse three times. The, the priest would raise up the two golden pitchers, and he would shout, oh, give thanks to the Lord. He is good, for his steadfast, loves for, uh, his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then he would pour it one into a silver bowl, and he'd pour the other one into a silver bowl, and he'd raise them up again, and he would praise God again. And then at the culmination, the high point of this whole thing, and the end of the whole thing is he would take the, the water from the pool of Siloam, which represents the water from the rock, and he would take the wine, which represented God's blessing and, and his future promise of the Spirit to come, and he would pour them out so that the water and the wine would run together. It hit the altar and it would splash off. And a great shout in the streets would rise up and a great praise would rise up in the crowd. 
And at that moment, as the crowd starts to die down, I just imagine in these moments where they've been going through this motion year after year after year, generation after generation after generation. Imagine there's just this moment where you're kind of like, well, that was good. John, John it's good seeing you again this year. I guess, I guess we'll see you next year, and we'll do this again. And I imagine that there, there were some people that are like, man, it's, it's hot. It's, it's high noon. I'm, I'm kind of thirsty. And, and then I imagine that there are people that the Father was drawing to himself and causing a thirst, saying there's got to be more than this. Look at the next line. Jesus stood up at this moment when the crowd has died down. Jesus stood up and cried out, your translation might say, with a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's saying this whole thing is about me. I provided manna in the desert. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the water from the rock to satisfy your souls. He's appealing to them. He says, um, if anyone thirsts, come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. To, to thirst for Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to thirst for Jesus. You see, belief in Jesus isn't just saying, I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he forgave me. That's mental assent. It is this, this longing for Jesus. It is this satisfaction in Jesus. It is a personal relationship with Jesus. It's the difference between uh, knowing about a cat and holding a cat by the tail. You learn a whole different thing about a cat when you do that. And this is what Jesus is getting at. It's about your longing and your thirst. And he says, out of, my, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the, the cool, refreshing, quenching water will, will come. But, but notice also who's writing this gospel. It's John. John, the youngest disciple, the bravest disciple. John alone of the disciples, when Jesus would be arrested and beaten and tortured and crucified, he alone would be at the foot of the cross. And he alone would take in everything that was happening. He would hear the words of Jesus. He would hear Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would see Jesus talk to his mother, and he, he would get commands from Jesus to care for his mother. But when Jesus had given up his spirit and died, he was there when the Roman soldiers came by. And on the screen, I think I have it, John 19.34, check this out. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw this, it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. Blood and water. Blood and water. Blood and wine would, would be mixed together on the sacrificial table for the sins of the people. And out of Jesus, out of his side, Jesus says, will flow rivers of living water. We 
live because Jesus died. We live because blood and water flowed down the cross. And whoever hungers and thirsts for that, they will drink from the rivers of living water. But so how do we cultivate our hunger and thirst for Jesus? Are you thirsty? God designed you to be thirsty, but the question is, what are you pursuing to satisfy your thirst? See, see again, we're, we're like fish in the water, and, and the, cultures, the, the cultural current takes us, and we're not even necessarily aware of it, so we've got to be aware of that. And every now and again, someone goes down far enough on in the current or down the road far enough and they report back and they're like, it's an empty promise and, and, and we have a hard time believing them. I came across a few this week. Jim Carrey, the actor, he said this once. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of. I mean, isn't that what we're all trying to do anyway? Let's get rich and famous and do everything we ever dreamed of. But listen to what Jim Carrey says. So they can see that it is not the answer. But again, because we swim in this cultural current, it's hard to believe him. Oh, come on, you, you've, you've done it. Let's take Tom Brady. This is about 10 years ago after he had won his third Super Bowl ring. After the party died down that night, about three o'clock in the morning, he was in his hotel room by himself on his bed, and he said this, why do I have these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all... It's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. And what else is there for me? In the Bible, Solomon also had done many of these roads. He wrote a book about it called Ecclesiastes. He says, well, I think I hunger and thirst for wealth. And he got more than anyone who had ever lived. And he said, it's meaningless. I hunger and thirst for sexual experience. And he got more than most people who would ever live. And he said, it's meaningless. I hunger and thirst for knowledge. And he got more than most people who ever lived. And he said, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. All these roads are meaningless except for to know and love God. See, the problem with us is we just haven't been far enough down the road. We think maybe if we get far enough down the road, we'll get there and we won't be like Solomon. We won't be like Jim Carrey. We won't be like Tom Brady. We'll say, yes, I'm satisfied because none of us will get far enough probably that far. And so we'll keep pursuing, keep trying. But there's another poll in scripture. There's Job who had all the things and then had it all stripped away. And at the end of his robe, he said, God, you are enough. You are enough. So how do we cultivate our hunger and thirst for God? Augustine, who went down some roads himself in his book, the opening line of his book, Confessions, says this, Thou hast formed us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. You were made to hunger and thirst. And you have, as long as your hunger and thirst is for righteousness, you're in a good place. But the problem is we saw none of us are righteous, and so we needed an alien righteousness. We needed the righteousness of Christ. So if I were to ask you, what's your greatest desire? You would probably say, if you're a Christian, Jesus. But is it? That's the right answer, but is it? 
And if we're honest with ourselves, that's not always our greatest desire. There's this movie called uh, Stalker. It was in 1979, post-apocalyptic Russian director. And in the movie, uh, there's this stalker who's kind of a guide for these other two characters, writer and professor. And they're drawn to the center of the city. And in the center of the city is a room. And they're told that in the room, if you enter the room, you get whatever your deepest desire is. And so they go on a journey. And through much trial and tribulation, they finally get to be right outside the room. And before going in, they pause. Do you know why they pause? Would you pause? They pause because they say, what if what's in the room isn't what I think I desire? What if it's something entirely else? So, so that's a struggle in all of us. So, so we, we know what we should desire, but, but practically, would you go in the room? But thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. He, he knows that our desires are often disordered, and he gives us paths back to rightly order our desires. We, I was meeting with Matthew this week, and we said, well, how, how, do, we, how, how do we culminate this? Rather than giving people a list of things to do that, that they're going to forget about on Monday morning, how do you cultivate that? And, and simply, I, I just want to put before you to, to pursue God's ordinary means of grace, and you're doing it right now. Part of the way we cultivate our desires is we need three things. We, we do need to know the truth. We have no hope without the truth. But we know from personal experience that the truth isn't enough. This is why you won't exercise or you won't, you won't eat the right things. You won't do things that you know you should do because the truth isn't enough. And so secondly, we need a community of people on the journey with us. Anyone that has any knowledge or background or experience with AA knows this. You got to know the truth, but they'll say your best thinking got you here. So it's not enough that you know the truth. You need a people to journey with on this. And then third, you need some habits to develop. You need some habits to develop that will begin to shape and form and cultivate our desires. This is true. We know this in every other area of life, right? Like athletes know, you have to do things you don't want to do. You have to incorporate habits that you don't want to to succeed. Musicians know this. People that uh, do well financially know this. It it takes habits. It takes the truth. It takes a community. And as I was talking with my wife about this, uh, this last week, uh, she gets a text from Molly, her CrossFit coach, and and, uh, the text made my point. The the quote to to all her her CrossFit athletes was this, habit and routine are more effective than motivation. Develop the skill of doing what you don't feel motivated to do. Habit and routine are more effective than motivation. Again, we know this, but for for some reason in the Christian world, we've said it's all about motivation. So show up on Sunday, and if it's a good pastor, you'll be motivated. And that'll last till about Monday morning. You have to develop habit routine. And and God has has given his church historically some what what, what theologians would call ordinary means of grace. This time that is so countercultural. When when we come into this room and we are called to worship, we're, we're called to go vertical in a very horizontal world. That's different. And as we go vertical, we see that God is holy and I am not. 
And all of a sudden, we, we recognize that. And so we do a confession of sin. We, we say, our desires aren't what they should be, but Lord, would you create the right desires in us? And after confession, we, we receive the assurance of pardon. The gospel that says, Christ comes to you and says, I'll take that. I died for you. I, I, I love you. You are mine. I've made you my family. And so we stand up, and then we feast on the Word of God. In a moment, we'll, we'll have the habit of coming to the table, and like the Feast of Booths, we'll, we'll look back at what Christ did, but we'll also look forward to the day when we will feast with Jesus. And then, after uh, worship through song and worship through giving, we will, you will receive a benediction where God will bless you and send you out as image bearers in the world. Now, none of that is is smoke and mirror and lights, and none of that's all that exciting, but over time, it has a way of cultivating your hungers for Jesus. So half of discipleship is simply showing up, showing up at your gospel community, showing up at church, and just trusting and doing things that maybe you don't want to do, but you want Jesus, or you want to want Jesus, and so he will shape that in you. To that end, I want to pray for us as we close out our time. Father, we, we come before you and I confess and know that sometimes I think my desires are pure, but many times they aren't. And I would not want to go into the room. But Lord, I thank you that you are um, you're good. You didn't leave us on our own, but you put your spirit, you poured out your spirit on us to convict us of sin, to, to make us a body, to make us a community, and you've given us gifts of your grace. You've given us a family in Christ. You've given us these practices, these rituals that are meant to stir in us a right hunger and a right thirst. So would you make much of Jesus in our lives in these days and years to come? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.